0: Hey everybody, this is Steven. Just wanted to come to you before the official start of this episode. Let everybody know that I recorded this episode while the Northwestern-Purdue game was in progress. So there's no talk of the Northwestern-Purdue game in this episode. The Wildcats get a big 64-58 win. Over number one Purdue, beating the number one team for the first time in program history at Northwestern. Huge accomplishment for them. So I just wanted to start things off here with a little Northwestern Purdue talk before we get into the bulk of the main episode. When I went to record... Northwestern was down by 7 at halftime. Purdue was up 37-30. It's like, ah, they're going to pull this one away. No need to wait to record. Lo and behold, Northwestern comes back and gets the win. The Wildcats hold Purdue to just 21 points in the second half. And really, a lot of the things that I, you'll hear me lay out in this episode, as far as how I think Maryland could potentially beat Purdue on Thursday, is what Northwestern did. Northwestern first forced Purdue into 16 turnovers, including six by Zach Eady. Five of Edie's turnovers were in the second half. Northwestern did a lot of doubling, which is, you know, what a lot of teams do, but they were really effective doubling Eady on the catch, forcing him into a bunch of turnovers. Edie still had a Zach Eady day, 24 points, eight rebounds. But uh, the turnovers were a huge deal for this Purdue team, and it's something that we've got to start thinking about as a concern when we think about, can this team win a national championship? Because I think there's a lot of teams out there that have the personnel to effectively force Purdue into a bunch of turnovers, make life a lot harder on them. Braden Smith, three turnovers, uh, and Lawyer with two turnovers as well. 16 total of the Boilermakers, uh, so this is starting to become a real concern for Purdue, and I think, frankly, something that they might see more and more of outside of the Big Ten, where teams have the personnel to be able to run full-court press, to pressure those guards, and uh, in this game, pressure Zach Edie with, you know, running those doubles, effectively running those doubles, something we haven't seen teams. We've seen teams do a lot, but not nearly as effectively as Northwestern was able to do today. And outside of Edie on the offensive end, Purdue held to just 58 points here. Uh, Edie had 24 of those 58, Brayden Smith with 10, Mason Gillis with nine, just not a lot going on. Uh, as far as Purdue's other non-Zach Eady players were concerned in this one, and then on the per, on the Northwestern side, you know Boo Booey did for Northwestern what I think Jameer Young can do for Maryland. Just an unbelievable game. A similar type of guard to Jameer Young. Had 26 points, 9 of 20 shooting, and he didn't even do it really from the three-point line. Just one of six from three, but went to the line nine times, got to the rim, attacked, and he got Northwestern a big win. What a huge win for the Northwestern Wildcats. I mean, can't say enough about this team and what they've done this year. You know, I really was not buying them until recently. And even as of recently, I was buying them as, okay, this is a tournament team. Well, now this Northwestern team, they're sitting at nine and five, tied for second place in the Big Ten with Indiana. And I think they are very realistically in this discussion of who is the second best team in the Big Ten. Indiana has to be in that discussion. Illinois is in that discussion. Rutgers is in that discussion. And I think Northwestern and Maryland are the other two teams in that discussion. So just a monster win for Northwestern. Looks like they'll make the tournament for just the second time in program history. Chris Collins, I mean really on the hot seat coming into this year. hadn't had a winning Big 10 record since 2017 when he did take Northwestern to the tournament for the first time in program history and it looks like he will take him there once again. uh to end the year we will really find out if they are that second best team because they have Indiana and Iowa at home for their next two games. they go on the road to play Illinois and Maryland. They end with Penn State at home, Rutgers away. So, yeah, we are going to find out a lot more. Their, Their schedule gets tough. But, look, they beat Illinois once already this year. They beat Indiana on the road once this year. And this Northwestern team has shown throughout the course of the season that they're really one of the few Big Ten teams that actually has the ability to go on the road and win consistently. They're 6-2 and two on the road on the year. They're the only other team in the Big Ten that has a winning road record outside of Purdue. Purdue, 7-2 and two away from home, including that loss today. Northwestern, 6-2. and two. Everybody else in the Big Ten has a losing record away from home. So what a big win for this Northwestern Wildcats program. I should have had more faith in them that they could make this a game in the second half, and I should have waited to record, uh, but that's the Northwestern Purdue talk, and now on to your regularly scheduled episode. This is Tailgate Till May. I'm your host, Stephen Gorgie, and I'm back for another episode to talk about what you care about most in the world of college sports. As always, you can find this show on Apple, Spotify, Google, pretty much everywhere you find your podcast, you can find this show. If you like the show, I'd love if you leave us a five-star review and subscribe. You can also find me on Twitter, at gorgon sports. That's where you can find all my other musings and, and gambling picks as the college basketball season continues. Today, I have a great show planned for you. I'm going to get into some winners and losers from the weekend. I'm going to talk a little bit about how I'm feeling about my Terps after a home win over Penn State. I'll do some who's in, who's out. Look ahead to my favorite games of next week. But today, we will start with my big takeaway from the weekend. And my biggest takeaway from this great weekend of college basketball is that the mar- the margins are just razor thin in this sport right now. There were a couple games I really had my eye on over the course of the weekend. And first and foremost among them was the Creighton-Yukon game. That's the game I wanted to preview this weekend. I was excited about that game. I felt like both of those teams have outside Final Four potential. Jayhawks have been playing great. Yukon has fallen back to earth since a hot start, but starting to put things together a little bit again. And uh, it was a good game. Creighton came out on top, 56-53, a low-scoring affair. But for Yukon, Adama Sinogo put on another show against the Jays. He scored 17 but over the final 14 minutes of the game, UConn could put up just 13 points and shot only four free throws for the game. While Creighton got to the line 17 times, we talked again before the weekend about how good Creighton is at playing defense without fouling. We talked about the how well Adama Sanogo played for UConn last time. And uh, he had another great game, but it wasn't quite enough to overcome that Creighton defense. And with this game, a lot of it came down to execution at the end, and it's because these these r- r- margins are just so thin right now in college basketball, a lot of time it's going to come down to execution. You know, a lot of times in the NBA, you'll hear, like, it's a make-miss league. It kind of just comes down to who makes shots and who misses shots. Well, I, I don't think college basketball is quite as simple as that, it's Who who makes shots, who misses shots, but I think – there is a certain level of which teams execute the best and which teams don't, especially at the end of games. And with a bunch of these games that I'm going to talk about here in this opening segment, we're going to see the same things where teams didn't quite execute and didn't come away with a win, and it's really going to hurt them as this season goes on. Now, that doesn't mean they can't execute better next time. I believe they can. I, I believe... Some portion of this is something that teams can do consistently day in day out, and I believe I certainly believe there are teams that are very good at executing at in end of game situations. But I think there is to some extent um some variance in this, some randomness. But I think in each and every one of these games, we're going to see teams that just didn't execute down the stretch. And UConn was one of them. Like I said, just 13 points over the final 14 minutes. They had a chance to tie it in the final minute. Sunogo, the big man, he got a pretty wide open three. You know, he's a guy who prior to this year really didn't take any threes. He had only shot one over the previous two seasons. But on the year, he's taken 40. He's 40% on the year. He's about, I think, one and a half threes he's taken per game. He was three for seven in the game against Creighton. But he, he missed this one. You know, my gut reaction to the shot was you got to find somebody else to shoot that other than Sanogo. And I started looking into it a little bit more and seeing how he's developed his game. And, you know, upon further review, I don't hate it because he was three of six from deep before that shot ended three of seven. Um, and it was a wide open look. He's a guy who was feeling it, who had been playing good inside and out. So I don't hate it at all, but either way, he missed it. Yukon um, was able to get the rebound and, Hawkins hit a shot that looked like it might have been a three. His foot was on the line, ended up being a two and that's as close as UConn would come. They were able to cut it to one there. Creighton hit a a few free throws and then UConn couldn't get a shot off on their final possession. Um, Creighton intercepted it on the inbound, and Creighton comes away with the win. But this was a game that really came down to that end-of-game possession. And one of the things I like to look at when I'm looking at games later in the day the next day is I love on BartTorvik.com, he has what he calls a G-score, a game score. And it basically measures how a team performed in that given game. So it spans from 0 to 100. 50 is basically average a uh, hundred is perfect and zero is as bad as you can get. And in this game, UConn had a G score of eighty five. Eighty five out of a hundred. And that roughly is equivalent to they performed how a top thirty five team would expect to perform against Creighton, which is not too bad. They've also had losses though this year. Against Seton Hall, they had a game score of eighty nine. Against Marquette, a game score of eighty eight. So I-, I think again that shows how these margins are right now in college basketball where UConn is playing like a top 30 top 35 team in some of these games but is unable to come away with the win because of execution down the stretch another game where I felt like this I saw the same thing was Indiana's win over Michigan Michigan loses 62 61 at home to Indiana in a game they desperately needed to have to not just get over the hump on the bubble, but just get back into the bubble conversation right now. They were, they are really nowhere to be found when you talk about the bubble conversation, they are 67th in the net. They have that bad quad four loss. They're two and nine against quad one teams. And uh, they just don't have a ton of, to their resume right now. They're, they're really struggling, and they need some big wins. A huge opportunity for a big win, and Michigan, much like UConn, did not score enough to end the game, just scored five points over their final eight minutes, and they could not get the hunt, the ball to Hunter Dickinson enough. Hunter Dickinson is far and away the best player on that team. For my money, he should be a first team. If you were just looking at naming the five best players in the Big Ten, regardless of position, if that's how you want to do your first team, Hunter Dickinson, to me, is on that first team, along with Zach Eady and Trace Jackson Davis. I think he's a tier below those guys, but I think he's one of the five best players in the Big Ten. For whatever reason, they have struggled to get Hunter Dickinson the ball enough throughout the year. There was a possession towards the end of the game where Miller Copped was on him. Not Trace Jackson Davis, but Miller Kopp was on him. And that's a huge mismatch in Michigan's favor. And they could not get him the ball. There's There's one possession where they were struggling to get him the ball when Kopp was on him. They did get him the ball. And then he was able to kick it out for a wide open three that just didn't fall. There was another possession later where Kopp was on him. Then eventually they brought a double And Michigan turned the ball over trying to get him the ball. It was was a really poor performance from Michigan's perimeter players in getting Hunter Dickinson the ball in a timely fashion in the right position and taking care of the mismatches that were presenting themselves. He shot 10 shots, 16 points on 6 of 10 shooting. Kobe Bufkin also took 10 shots. Jet Howard took 14 shots. To me, there should never be a time where Hunter Dickinson does not have the most shots on the team. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago with Brian and Oscar Shiboy, and it's like you got to take a look at what Purdue is doing with Zach Eadie because there is never a time where they struggle to get Zach Eady the ball. Zach Eadie takes 31% of Purdue's shots, as he should. He is a dominant force. And I don't think Dickinson's quite at that level, but he is very much a he he is a dominant force in his own right, even if not quite the same as Edie. Uh, but nonetheless, they struggled to get him the ball. He never touched the ball on the last possession. They didn't take a very good shot up up one or down one rather. Didn't like that last possession at all. And uh, they came away with yet another loss. And that is the difference in this sport right now between being Indiana, Indiana now looking like it's going to be, I don't know, I think Indiana has a good chance to land somewhere between a four, maybe a four seed, maybe a five seed, maybe up to a three seed on the very high end if they keep winning can make a run in the Big Ten tournament. But that is the difference right now between a top 20, top 25 team and a team that is not in the bubble conversation. That's it. That's all that is separating some of these teams. And then you have the Tennessee Volunteers. Tennessee, for the second time in a week, loses on a buzzer beater to a team that they are significantly better than. Tennessee was a 12 to 12 and a half point favorite on Saturday over Missouri, end up, end up losing 86 85 with four seconds left. Santiago Ves- Vescovi misses the first free throw, two shot foul. Uh, they're in the double bonus, misses the first free free throw, so they stay up two. Then Tennessee is called for a lane violation on the second shot, never even get to get that second free throw up, so they're up two with four seconds left. DeAndre Golston from Missouri pushes the ball up the court, hits a three at the buzzer, his fourth three of the game, his 18th point of the game, and Missouri goes into Knoxville, comes out with the win. This is a Tennessee team that had aspirations of winning the sec that has aspirations of going to a final four that has aspirations of going to winning the national championship and they lose in that fashion because they miss a free throw. They take a lane violation and then they let a guard basically get a free release going full speed, right up the floor and he drills a shot. A great shot, not the most you know, high-percentage shot, but they allowed him to get that look for a team that, if you look at any of these advanced analytics, is supposed to be one of, if not the best defensive team in the country. Just inexcusable by Tennessee there. And even more inexcusable when you see that it came on the he- he- heels of what happened earlier this week against Vanderbilt. Against Vanderbilt in, in Nashville, eight seconds left, Tennessee's up two. They're inbounding underneath their own basket. They first nearly commit a five-second violation, but get a timeout. And then Viscovi, the same guy who missed the free throw against Missouri, he misses the front end of a one-and-one. One. Vanderbilt gets the rebound, goes down, uh, Stackhouse draws a play, and they hit a corner three to win the game 66-65. Again, end-of-game execution. The difference between Tennessee right now being having four losses in conference, being essentially completely out of the SEC title race, sitting at 8-4 and four in the conference compared to Alabama's 12-0, and 0, and maybe being 10-2 and two, two games back and still being within striking distance of Alabama with a game at home against Alabama coming up on Wednesday. Things look very different if this Tennessee team is 10-2 and two with Alabama coming to Knoxville on Wednesday, a chance to pull within one game of them. We're talking about Tennessee as not only a potential SEC champion, but also still in the number one seed conversation. Now, forget about that. You know, the Missouri loss, it's not a bad loss necessarily as far as like you're the the quadrants go. It's, it's a quad two loss, so it's not horrible. They're 44th in the net right now. The Vanderbilt loss, I mean, that one is. That one's really bad. That Vandy's loss is a really bad loss. That's a team that's hovering around a 500 overall record, 93 in the net. But when you combine the way they lost those games and the opportunity they had, the aspirations they have, uh, that, those are really tough ones. And, again, I think all of this together – that was my big takeaway coming from the weekend watching those games. Is the margins in this sport are so razor thin right now that it comes down so much to execution. And it should make for a wild stretch run to this season, a wild conference tournament week, and as always, a crazy, crazy NCAA tournament. Now, let's get into some winners and losers of the week, and we'll start with some winners. My first winner of the week is Logan Johnson, senior guard from St. Mary's. What a week he had. This man, in a midweek loss, and yes, I know it was a loss, and, you know, St. Mary's does not want to be dropping any more West Coast Conference games, but in an overtime loss to Loyola Marymount. This man had 31 points. And how does he follow that up? How did Logan Johnson follow that up this weekend against Portland? Oh, no big deal. Just put up a cool 34. Went 4 of 8 from 3. 8 of 9 from the line. He kind of did it all. He's not a guy that's only going to get you from deep. He can get to the basket as well. And uh, unbelievable week for him with a 31-point and 34-point effort. They did get the win over Portland. And I think this is big for St. Mary's because not only are they relying on Aiden Mahaney, their star freshman to score. And he's been an absolute sensation for them this year. But Logan Johnson's a guy who just provides another scoring threat for them at the guard spot. And he's a guy, you know, they they've been able to rely on in the past. He's made all conference teams in the WCC before he's a senior. He's experienced. He's been there, but, Not to this level, where he's putting up 31-point games, 34-point games. The previous five games before that, he put up 12, 12, 14, 13, 17. So a good score, but not a fantastic score, not a 30-point-per-game scorer. And for him to put up those kind of efforts two games in a row, I think is a great sign for St. Mary's. And, you know, St. Mary's is a team that we're going to have to start to talk about a lot more here. Because a week ago, or... Now it was, yeah, just about a week ago, uh, on Saturday, February 4th, they did beat Gonzaga at home. You know, Gonzaga runs that league. Even though Gonzaga is down by Gonzaga standards, they run that league, and St. Mary's is a team that's always right there but a step behind Gonzaga. And right now, St. Mary's is looking a lot like at that team that maybe could get to a Final Four. In a year where, I, as I've been talking about, the – margins are so razor thin why not saint mary's so that's something we're going to have to take a deeper look at here in the in the coming weeks my next winner of the week is texas and boy oh boy is it hard to be be, be playing better than the texas longhorns right now you know we've touched on them here and there but that absolute shellacking they put on West Virginia on Saturday was a sight to behold. And it was a great rebound for them coming off a loss to Kansas where they didn't necessarily play poorly. It's just, it's tough to beat Kansas. So my my second winner of the week is the Texas Longhorns. They are uh, in first place in the Big 12 right now. And they are looking more and more like, to me, the team that is starting to fit into that fourth number one seed spot. I think it's, it's almost a lock that Houston, Purdue, and Alabama are going to get three of them. But I think there's a real race for that fourth number one seed. And what it's going to come down to, I think, I think it's going to come down to whoever wins the Big 12 and possibly UCLA I think at this point Arizona's out after that atrocious loss to Stanford Arizona has no uh no business losing a game like that to Stanford so I think at this point if you, UCLA can take care of business the rest of the way in the Pac-12 they'll have a shot but otherwise I think it's I think it's the Big 12 champion is going to have a shot I think Tennessee's out of the conversation um I don't think Virginia can get there just because the ACC is not quite strong enough. So give me, give me the, uh, give me Texas as a real competitor for that last number one seed. Uh, can't say enough about the way they're playing right now. All right, let's get to some losers. So my first loser of the week is the Big Ten bubble teams, and we talked about Michigan's loss already. But for a bunch of these Big Ten teams on the bubble, it was not a good weekend. Wisconsin, a team very much on the bubble. They have been struggling, struggling, struggling down the stretch here. They lost a game to Nebraska where they had a double-digit lead. They looked like they were cruising. They end up losing to Nebraska. They're now 80th in the net. No, they're five and six against quad one. They have some good wins, but that 80th number in the net is going to be really hard for them to overcome. And it just, it seems like Nebraska or Wisconsin rather is a team that is just not trending the right direction. They're now six and eight in conference. Ken Palm projects them to go nine and 11 in conference. They've lost five of their last seven, uh, but the Nebraska loss is just one that you cannot take. If you look at their schedule before that Nebraska game, you know, you would say almost any other loss on their schedule would have been reasonable. Uh, maybe they, they play Michigan twice, uh, so you probably want to win both of those, but. I mean, the Nebraska loss, you can't have. And then to end the season, Minnesota, they can't lose to Minnesota. Those are the two clear bottom feeders in the Big Ten. And that loss, I think, might be the one that sinks Wisconsin. So, Wisconsin, not a good look for them. Again, we already talked about Michigan and that golden opportunity they had against Indiana. And then we can get into Maryland. We'll get into Maryland-Penn State because it's – uh. And I I said we'll get into Maryland. Really, let's get into Penn State when it comes to Big Ten bubble teams, because Penn State was a team that at one point they were looking good. They were five and five in the conference, and now they've lost four straight. You know, a loss to Purdue on the road, you know, that's not a bad loss. A loss to Maryland on the road, that's fine. That's not a bad loss. But it's the the middle two losses here that they just cannot have. Again, a loss to Nebraska. They went and lost to Nebraska. You cannot lose to Nebraska. And then they lost at home to Wisconsin. And Penn State is a team that is just trending the wrong direction. You know, they play so slow that it's easy when you look at their box scores to be like, oh, okay, well, you know, it's their defense can't be the problem. You know, they gave up – 74 to maryland that's not too bad they gave up 72 to nebraska 79 to wisconsin but it was in overtime but they play so slow that these other teams are really putting up major offensive efficiency numbers they're just not putting up high point totals maryland against penn state Shot 61% from inside the arc, 38% from outside, went to the line 23 times. Not a good defensive performance by Penn State. And, you know, you gotta, and it sounds simple to say, but you gotta play some defense. Against Wisconsin, a really similar story. Wisconsin, 59% inside the arc, 46% from three. And that's just not going to cut it for Penn State. So that's really the problem with Penn State right now. It's that they are not a good, good offensive ball club. The other issue with them, and I just don't see this getting right for them, is they are not a very good three-point shooting team. They shoot just under 35% on the year, which is good for 221st in the nation. But they shoot the six most threes as a percentage of their overall shots of any team in the country. So they put up a ton of threes, and if they're not falling, they don't have much other option. Jalen Pickett, look, outstanding guard in Jalen Pickett there. And against Maryland on Saturday, he ended up with 15 points. But he didn't score a, a point in that game until late, late, late in the first half. 530 left in the first half. He only had four at the end of the half. And uh, you know, when Maryland was able to put some some bigger guys on him, he really struggled. He did better against Jameer Young, who's a six foot guard. But Jalen Pickett can't do it all for Penn State. It should have a ton of threes. And I think I'm really at the point where I don't see either Michigan, Penn State, or Wisconsin making the NCAA tournament. I think that the Big Ten is really looking like an eight-bid league right now. My other loser of the week are the officials in that Duke-Virginia game. And look, I know there's... I've never been a guy who likes to blame officials for wins and losses. Never, ever, ever. I think it is the lowest form of discourse. I think it's something that irritates me immensely when talking to other Maryland fans or reading some of the discourse around Maryland online it's always about the officials and how like we have this weird complex at Maryland where we always feel like we're we're not being given a fair shake whether it's because we were the northernmost team in the ACC for many years or now kind of the outsider as a new team in the Big 10 i don't buy any of that at all i don't think that there's inherent bias in officials at all i think officials are trying hard i think it's a a tough job i think a lot of them are very very overworked and sometimes there are bad calls and in this situation in the uva duke game there there was a really bad call and then there's no doubt about it i think there there's no denying it and the situation was the game was tied duke runs a great inbounds play uh they get to the bucket kyle filipowski looks like he gets fouled in fact they call a foul on the play, it would have been a shooting foul, um, you know, with well under a second left, probably like 0.1, 0.2, 0.3 seconds left, chance to go to the line and, and put Duke up. And they did call a foul. The officials called the foul. They went back to the monitor, reviewed it, and said that it did not, the foul did not occur before the clock hit zero. I watched it several times. I thought that was absolutely the wrong call. And the ACC has agreed. The ACC says that that was the wrong call. Duke should have been shooting two free throws, should have had effectively a chance to win the game. They didn't. They lost in overtime. And, you know, good on UVA for being able to regroup from that, come back in overtime, and do what they needed to do to win. Like we've talked about, execute. Executing so important, and they executed in that five-minute overtime period. But a really bad performance by uh, the officials in that UVA Duke game on that final final possession. I don't know with the benefit of replay, it's really tough to wrap my head around getting that one wrong. And it's it's times like these where I, I'll let me tell you my thing on replay. I don't like it. I don't like replay at all. I think we wind these sports down to such minutiae and frame-by-frame details. Like, in the NFL, it's so hard to know what's a catch anymore. Everything, it's like you lose the essence. You don't, we're not keeping the main thing the main thing. And we get down to, like, feel, you feel like you're watching, like, the Zapruder film sometimes. And so I don't love it, but if we're going to use it, like how how can you miss that call? You got to get that right there. So, loser of the week, they got to be better next time. Uh, End up ended up costing Duke the game there. So those are my winners and losers of the week. Let's move on to the Maryland minute. I talked about the Maryland. Penn State game, more from a Penn State perspective. So I want to talk about it a bit more from a Maryland perspective and I include that Michigan State game, too, because Maryland dropped the midweek contest in East Lansing, then came back, rebounded with a home win against Penn State. And I think Maryland's in a great spot. Maryland right now sitting at 8-6 and six in the conference. I predicted a few weeks ago 12-8. and eight. Uh, That's still my prediction. I think there's a chance, though, they can get to 13-7. and seven. They have an absolutely monster home matchup against Purdue this week. Remember, they played Purdue pretty well in Mackey a couple weeks ago. Did a great job of pressuring Purdue's guards. You know, Zach Eady got his, but they were putting pressure on those freshman guards, and uh, that's, that's really where Maryland excels, and I think it's an area where they have an advantage. I also think Maryland has an advantage on the offensive end with Jameer Young. I want to keep saying this about Jameer Young. He is one of, if not the most underrated player in the Big Ten. I think he deserves very much so to be first team all Big Ten. I think after Jalen Pickett, he is the best guard in the conference, and I think he provides a different look than most Big Ten teams. See, he is a Big East guard in the Big Ten, and I think that's a tremendous challenge for most Big Ten teams, including Purdue. Purdue is a very good team. Purdue is not a perfect team. Now, Zach Eady obviously provides a unbelievable challenge for Maryland, but Maryland has played some of the big men much better than they were earlier in the season. They played Hunter Dickinson better, or at least they are playing these guys where they are scoring, but it doesn't seem like they're dominating. Even when they played Purdue, even when Maryland lost to Purdue, Zach Eadie had a really nice game from a stat line perspective. He had 24 points and 16 rebounds, right? A, A typical fantastic Zach Eady performance, but it didn't feel in that game, it felt like that was, you know, that was pretty much all they were able to get, and not all they were able to get, but most of what they were able to get, yeah, they, Purdue hit a few big threes in that game, but they were only two for 13 beyond the arc, they were just timely and big, Maryland couldn't buy a bucket from deep, which is kind of become a trend and I think that's the biggest thing if Maryland can somehow find a way to improve improve its three-point shooting, and they do tend to shoot a little bit better at home than they do on the road, then this can be a very different Maryland team. The other big thing for Maryland is if they can keep Julian Reese, their big man, on the floor, and I say big man, he's 6'9", you know, Zach he still has a 7-inch advantage on him, but Reese is a guy who's been playing really well for Maryland, he just has a hard time staying on the court, he leads the big 10 in fouls. So how does Maryland beat Purdue? I think the I think the game plan here has to be pressure their guards, force turnovers, at a minimum, even if you're not forcing turnovers delay them getting into their offense run 10 12 seconds off the clock before they're really able to get in their offense and establish ed i think that's number one look iowa had a lot of success running full court press against purdue purdue looked flustered at times in that game i think number two is look obvious this is how a lot of upsets happen can maryland knock down some threes I think Don Carey has been Maryland's starting two-guard car- two for this season, but Ian Martinez has kind of been their sixth man, but he's starting to take a lot of Carey's minutes at the end of games. He is not, by any stretch, a fantastic three-point shooter. He doesn't take a ton of them, but he is shooting 38% on the year, and he seems like a guy maybe he can provide something, provide a spark, um, hit a few threes, and help Maryland. Just- Maryland's a 30% shooting team from three-point land. On the air. If if they can even, you know, go 35% against Purdue, I think that's huge. And then Jameer Young. Can Jameer Young create? Can he break down those guards, produce young guards, get into the lane? And then, you know, Jameer will have a hard time finishing over Zach Eadie. He's a small guard. Zach Eadie is one of the best big men in the country. That's gonna be a challenge. But if he can get in the lane and create opportunities for others, I think that's kind of the recipe for how Maryland pulls an upset of over Purdue at home. Maryland undefeated in conference play, the only Big Ten team that's undefeated in conference play. I love where this season is going. I love how this Maryland team has played. My expectation is 12-8. That was my prediction a few weeks ago. Ken Palm now agrees with that predict- prediction. Prediction of 12 and eight. And I think Maryland is very solidly in the tournament, probably looking at a seven seed. I think a win over Purdue though starts, you know, you can start thinking maybe they can get up to a six seed, maybe a five seed, uh, especially as we see other teams lose throughout the country. So I am excited to be in attendance for that one on Thursday should be a fantastic game, fantastic college basketball environment as uh, Xfinity center usually is. We're going to do a non-college basketball related who's in, who's out in honor of Super Bowl Sunday. I'm recording this a couple hours before the game today. I want to talk about Super Bowl food, my other big passion, sports, food, pretty much top two passions that I have. And, you know, when it comes to football food, that doesn't get any better for me. So I am going with what's in, what's in for me today. I am going with a slow cooker Mexican beef that we're going to use to make some, some nachos, uh, use it maybe tomorrow too for some tacos, but, uh, a versatile Mexican beef, spicy Mexican beef, just something a little different. I think it steps your nachos up a level, going to make some homemade queso as well for it on the nachos. Let's see. We'll go jalapenos. Fresh salsa, obviously the queso. I like my jalapenos diced. I like the little diced jalapenos. No lettuce. I think lettuce is kind of a a filler, not really necessary. But that's what I'm going with as kind of my main thing for this Super Bowl Sunday. Some slow cooker Mexican beef to make some nachos. What's out for me? I love wings. Love wings. Just had some wings last night, actually. But for Super Bowl Sunday, I think it's played out. If you're going to get wings for Super Bowl Sunday, then I think you got to smoke the wings yourself. Smoke wings are actually my overall number one seed when it comes to wings. But I feel like on Super Bowl Sunday, if you go to your favorite wing place and you pick wings up, take them to a party, whatever, I just feel like they always end up cold. They've been sitting out for hours. Everybody's getting wings. It's just a, it's something where you're not getting the wings at their best. You're not getting, you're not getting them at their peak level. It's like a team that you know maybe got off to a hot start on the season. UConn, for example, UConn undefeated up until yeah, I think they were fourteen and zero, and now you're kind of getting UConn on the downturn. And I think that's what when you're getting your wings, you're getting them on the downturn. If you get them on Super Bowl Sunday, save your wings for another day. They'll be better then. So I got Mexican beef in wings, unless you're smoking them yourself at home, out on Super Bowl Sunday. We'll finish up today's show by looking at the week ahead, and I'll tell you what I'm excited about. And there's one game that I am really excited about for next week, and that's Houston taking on Memphis at home. It's 3 p.m. next Sunday. It seems like, Houston plays every Sunday, more or less. But I'm excited about this game for a couple of reasons. One, look, haven't seen a ton of Houston this year. I follow along with them. I look at their box scores. I'll watch them occasionally. But they just don't have that many games where you're like, I got to watch Houston. And as the one of the top three teams in the country, I'm looking forward to seeing them get a little bit more of a test. And, you know, we've kind of forgotten about Memphis to some extent, it seems like. I mean, a couple of years ago, Penny Hardaway had all the hype. Seems seemed like Memphis was going to be kind of the that new kid on the block in college basketball where they were just going to be hauling in all these recruits, getting a bunch of one-and-dones and winning big, going up against Kentucky and Duke for, you know, some of those top recruits. And uh, Memphis has is, is done it in a little quieter of a fashion this year, but they are having a really good season. They're 19 and six, they're nine and three in conference. And uh, they are, they're playing really well. They have Kendrick Davis, a senior guard, six foot guard, one of the best guards in the country. and He's been outstanding for them. I'm excited to see what kind of challenge Memphis can throw Houston's way. And maybe this is, You know, it could be... Memphis plays Houston two more times. So, you know, there's some things still on the line here for Houston. Um, Houston, I don't think... You know, I think they are essentially a lock for a number one seed. However, they still do have five games left if they lost... uh, Or six games, rather. If they lost two times to Memphis, that would throw a little wrench in their plans. And then, by that same token... Memphis has a huge opportunity to move up. Like Houston is not, they have no chance of falling below a two seed. So, some really big opportunities for Memphis to pick up some quality wins and really for us to see Memphis against the final four contenders and see how they compete, how they compare. One of the things that Memphis is, is not great at is limiting teams from an offensive rebounding perspective. Houston, outstanding offensive rebound team, so that concerns me a bit. We'll see, you know, how they work around that. Um, But I'm excited for this matchup. We don't get to see Houston play a ton of big games. Memphis has been under the radar, but they seem like they could provide a challenge, maybe more so when they play in Memphis and in Houston, but it's definitely one that that I'm going to be keeping an eye on, and I'm going to be locked in, Throughout, are out. Look, there's no football after today. Football season's done. So if you're looking for something to do on Sunday, if you're not already watching College Hoops on Sunday, tune into this one. See how it goes. See what Houston looks like. See what Memphis looks like. See if Memphis is maybe a team that we need to start considering as a team that can go to a Sweet 16, Elite 8, maybe Final Four. And uh, let's check out Houston. Let's see. Is Houston really the team that we think should be six and a half to one to win the national championship. I have been huge on Houston for a couple years. I think Kelvin Sampson has done an outstanding job there, but in this year where these margins are so razor thin, I just hate the idea of betting on any team at six and a half to one to win the national championship. That's our show for today. It was a blast as always. Nothing I love more than getting on the mic, talking a little college basketball after a big weekend. We are coming down the home stretch here, and I will be with you every step of the way as we finish out the regular season, get into conference tournaments, and then get into the madness. It's the time we wait for all year, and I can't wait to continue talking about it all with you. Until next time, keep the grill hot and the cooler cold.